Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. I'm Robert Cavolo, and I'm super excited about this talk because I just finished a book on the subject. And uh, I, I, did, um, uh, I did my doctoral work on theology and culture, in particular theology and fashion theory. And so I'm forged, I forged a new field, which is coming out uh, in November, a book with Baylor University Press. It's a university press book because my idea was I want future Christians that are in this industry to have actual scholarship that they can draw from rather than just be like, why are you saying that? Like, you know, that's just random. Um, and so um, a lot of discussions and disciplines um, have historic origins that bring them back to Christianity. If you look at early scientists, most of them were Christians or even, uh, but the later a discipline is, and so fashion theory is an emerging discipline that's been around for about 50 years. The later a discipline is, the more secular it tends to be. And so the more it's important for Christians to break into those discussions and bring a Christian vantage point, right? Because everything matters, right? That's the theme. Everything matters, right? So, um, so I, did, I did doctoral work at Fuller Seminary, and then I did a second PhD at, uh, <laughs> at the Free University of Amsterdam. If anybody's thinking of doing that, let me just say don't ever do that. It's just like I've, I, as a grown man, I've never cried so much in my life. I'll just assure you of that. Um, but by God's grace, I got through that um, and learned a little Dutch along the way. And then... Uh, and then um, I've, been, I've been a pastor. I was a pastor for 12 years in Long Beach, uh, working with college students, primarily at UCLA, Cal State Long Beach, UC Irvine. And then I went back into ministry. I was at, as a professor for, uh, for a while in an honors humanities program at Biola University, and I taught poetry, literature, theology, philosophy. That was fun. And then uh, I just went back into ministry with one of my best friends in the Pasadena area. So that's a little bit about me. Um, today, so we're going to talk about fashion, and I'm hoping to begin to explode your mind <clears throat> about what fashion is, because <clears throat> most people have a very superficial understanding of what fashion is, um, most Christians, um, and um, uh, just most people, and Christians tend to be like a lot of people, and here we are. So, and I did too, until I began studying this. Um, so, uh, I got interested in this because there's a huge fashion studies program at Cal State Long Beach, and I always try to get my students to understand how their discipline interacted with their Christian faith, and I had no idea how to answer my fashion studies students, and I didn't know what to tell them. And so that was one reason. Um, I have a lot of family in the industry, and uh, yada, yada. So, okay. Uh, but fashion is inescapable, and uh, we are all part of the fashion system. Here's some students walking at Boston University. Um, and as you can see, they are all doing what we all do when we walk around. They are checking each other out, right? Um, it's just part of doing what we do. And I don't even have my talk up yet. Hold on one second. There, nope. Hold on one second. Okay. Well, I'm going to go from memory at this point. So they're doing what we do. And they, um, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, you know, you, you, you think to yourself, just think for a second about the narrative that kind of goes on. Sometimes you give more thought, sometimes less thought, but you always think, I don't want to wear the exact same thing I wore yesterday. Anybody wearing the exact same thing they wore yesterday? Okay, probably not, all right? That just shows we're part of the fashion system, okay? Fashion, historically, it's, an, it's something that's just arrived in the, uh, the modern, modern fashion as we know it just come out in 13th century northern Italy. They can kind of pinpoint it. Most fashion theorists uh, pinpoint it that way. I know with globalization, we like to say that everything's always participating in everything, but fashion is, is a distinctly development. It's distinct development in the West, the modern West, and, and uh, it's something, though, even if you go, like, into the Roman period, you might see, like, the beginning in the late Roman Empire, not the early empire, fashion codes developing. We really don't have fashion as we know it until developing. And it went through different dispensations. Early dispensation, you see it developing among the aristocracy in Europe, reaching a pinnacle in the first dispensation with, like, Louis XIV in Versailles, where all the uh, nobility and aristocracy would come together and show off their clothing, Right. Uh, but during that time, you still had sumptuary legislation, which meant that not everybody could participate in the fashion system. And then eventually you have, uh, with the French Revolution, really, the beginning of the second dispensation. The French Revolution was um, a massive change where what you had is you had uh, people voting on what the aristocracy was wearing that weren't aristocracy. <laughs> and so once that began, and then they started doing knockoffs. You can read all about Marie Antoinette, right, and her knockoffs. They, she was, so she, she hired a fashion designer... But the problem was other people could also have that person as their fashion designer. And so you could dress like the queen for the first time in history. And if you did that, the idea that the queen is some kind of like creature from another level, a little closer to God than you are, 
a completely different status, you can no longer hold that in your imagination. And so the French Revolution was really about the end of the first dispensation of fashion, where fashion's used among the aristocracy, and then it starts pushing down among the lady, and it became, and becomes this, almost like social media, it becomes a third space where people start interacting and dialoguing, um, and, and, and voting, tacitly voting. So when you're walking down the street, uh, and, and, or in between classes, as you're looking at each other, you're tacitly voting. You're tacitly checking out each other, and you're tacitly deciding what you like, what you don't like. Maybe you're thinking what you, don't, you don't like what you're wearing in light of what that person's wearing, or how they put it together versus how you put it together. It's a visual discussion that's happening without words. It's very important for democracies. We'll get into that. But then you have the third dispensation, which is like in the 20th century, where fashion really transforms into what's called late modern fashion, which has shaped all of our understanding of gender, shaped our understanding of identity, uh, a lot of the deferral that you see today where people don't want to choose what their gender is actually comes from the way we practice fashion. If we're doing liturgies in which we defer our own identities day after day after day, in which we're constantly moving between identities, it's not a surprise that we have deferral of identities today that's driven with fashion. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is kind of where we're going. So fashion is inescapable. It's inescapable in so many ways. Every soft discipline in the university has a discussion of fashion. Anthropologists talk about it. Sociologists talk about it. Psychologists talk about it. Every soft discipline has a discussion about it. There's philosophy books about it. Uh, and so, and soon there will be the first ever theology book in fashion coming out. So, all right. But another reason why we can't avoid fashion is because we are moderns. And to be modern, the word modern itself comes from the word fashion. Mode. La mode, right? Mode is just fashion in French and other romantic languages. So to be modern is to be a person that's already living within the world of fashion. And what does it mean to live within the world of fashion? It means that we have a certain hypersensitivity to anachronisms. If you look at the history of paintings in the West, you'll find out that earlier paintings before the rise of fashion didn't care whether or not who they were painting fit within their time period. So if you were going to paint a picture of Jesus and you're living during the Renaissance, you're going to have Jesus look like a Renaissance dude. Okay? But with the rise of the modern period, we become extremely hyper-aware when things don't fit within our time period. And the reason is is because we come to value the new, the now. The now and the new has a certain kind of weight in an age of fashion that it never had in the history of culture. Okay? Some of you walked in here like, okay, he's kind of an older dude. I'm not sure if he's relevant. We'll see. Right? So that's part of you being a modern. You live within an age of fashion. So like I said, Mode, fashion, and modernity are deeply related. Because we don't understand fashion, we don't understand our own age. We don't understand the world we're living in. We don't understand why we see the things going on around us. And if we had a deeper and more profound understanding of fashion, it would change the way we view the world entirely. Um, There's a little quote from Yves Michaud, who is a French uh, post-critical sociologist, not exactly a friend of Christianity, but he says... Le mode, l'identité de l'époque, which means fashion is the identity of our age, which is another way to say that to be a modern is to be a person that buys into the logic of fashion, um, a logic that every single one of us already walked into this room holding. Okay, we can come back to this stuff. By the way, there's going to be, a, Q, be some, a time for Q&A at the end, all right? So you guys are getting fresh stuff, man, I'm telling you. Fresh stuff right here. I feel bad for everybody else that chose something else today out of this amazing, amazing workshop. All right, so in modernity, the new and the now is where it's at. Of course, commercials, uh, companies will draw in on that. They recognize that. They want to identify with the now, with what's current. In fact, you can already go through a whole list of companies that are going to go. We know that unless something changes, they will uh, die simply because younger generations no longer see them as a part of the now. It's not a part of the world that is the now. So the weight that we put on the cusp of the present moment in the modern period is distinct. And if you follow the history of thought, you can see where the shift takes place. In the Renaissance, what are they doing? They're borrowing from the classical period, right? Even in the French Revolution, you see them pulling off, they're dressing up like a, like a classical. I mean, they would have these, I don't know, how many of you studied the, the history of the French Revolution? 
awesome. You cannot understand secularization until you understand the French Revolution. If you understand why Europe is so secular, you've got to compare the French Revolution and the American Revolution, right? The French Revolution was a deeply secular revolution. They went out into nature, they dressed in classical garb, and worshipped the god of reason. Our revolution was where we took our polity within churches, because we were Congregationalists and Presbyterians, where you get to vote for your pastor. You have to have some kind of say in the polity of a church, and then we put that out into our political life. So for America, freedom of politics is deeply attached with freedom of religion. In the French mindset, you cannot have freedom of political thought and religion working at the same time. You have to undo it. Little, little interesting side note there. And by the way, most religious country in Europe, anybody? More people go to church in this European country than anywhere else? Poland, that's right. And the reason is because is it's the opposite of France. In Poland, who was it that was subverting the Soviet um, uh, imperialism? The Catholic Church. So in the mind of Poles, Christianity is, uh, is, a, is it basically brings political freedom. In America, it's the same way. So religion is welcomed in those social imaginaries. So interesting stuff, right? All right. So the new and improved, I mean, this is kind of like a cliche now, right? But new is not always improved, right? I mean, one of the things I grieve is now that we all have our Bibles on our apps, no one carries a Bible with them. I don't care. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I don't even carry a Bible with me, you know? And yet there used to be something when I was, a, when I was in high school, I had a nickname, Bible Bob. Not really a great nickname, but because I always carried my, a little Bible with me. I was a little evangelist in high school. Um, and, um, uh, but I liked, I liked there was something about having the Bible with me and identifying with the Bible. And uh, so some things are lost, some things are gained. You can have the Bible with you anytime now in a way. So lost and gained, but not always new and improved. Okay, so right about now you're asking, well, what is fashion? This guy's kind of giving 30,000 feet, what is fashion? What is fashion? Anybody? Anyone want to give a stab at a definition of what fashion is? Yeah. Um, like expression through clothing. Expression through clothing. Good, I like that. We know it has to do with clothing, and we know expression is an important part of it. Yeah. An intentional expression. And it, no matter what you're wearing, you're always expressing something, but there was intentionality at some point where people decided, I want to express a particular. Okay, so you want to, you want to draw attention to the, the, the intentionality of expressing yourself through clothing. Question. If a, um, if a uh, medicine man... In uh, a Native American group, decides to put on his medicine man outfit intentionally because he's going to go practice some kind of medicine. Is he is he doing fashion? I would say no. I would say that's not a fashion statement. I'd say he's the medicine man. That's his outfit. He might be really intentional to make sure that he's putting on his medicine thing, you know, that day instead of just you know whatever wearing his loincloth or whatever he wouldn't wear. So yeah. I guess also on the flip side where people would put something on and unintentionally express an idea, basically the whole grunge movement yeah. in the 90s, where they would just kind of throw things on and people were like, yes, that's fashion. Yeah. And they were completely unintentional. Unintentional. Okay, so yeah, so there can be kind of a, a Rothko kind of approach towards what we wear. So, yeah. Okay, well, let me, give, let's, let's, um, let me, let me throw out a couple things here that all fashion theorists, fashion theorists are people that theorize about fashion, okay, that all fashion theorists hold to, okay? Number one is fashion is deeply, um, uh, I don't want to say all, but I would say the vast majority recognize that fashion is about change, okay? In fact, when we use the word fashion, we can talk about fashion in a broad sense that doesn't have to do with clothing. We can talk about ideas coming in and out of fashion. We can talk about cars coming in and out of fashion, right? So fashion has to do with change, all right? And static cultures like the one I gave you, like a North American tribe, you don't have clothing changing all the time. So it has to do with change, but it also has to do with change of clothing. So we have this little definition. Fashion is dress in which the key feature is rapid and continual changing of style. Elizabeth Wilson, British uh, fashion theorist. Fashion and modernity, right? Of course it is. Um, So because our clothing changes, and it changes quite rapidly in the modern period, it's one of the ways in which we mark history. It's the way in which we mark time. It's one of the ways you distinguish yourself from your parents' generation, right? If you're in a tribal group, you can't distinguish yourself generationally. 
If you're Amish, you don't really have the strong way of distinguishing yourself generationally. So fashion um, is one of the ways we distinguish ourselves and distinguish time periods, right? So fashion has a history. Okay, we see this and we immediately notice this dude's not from <laughs> the modern period. So it's one of the ways in which we can make sure that we are a part of the now because we're moderns. Being a part of the now is incredibly important for moderns. Okay, Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun. Moderns say, no way, it's all new. And I want to be on the new, whatever that new is. Some of that's also driven by technology. But so, so fashion has a history, and you can identify different epochs based upon the history. But there's more even going on. There's more going on. I intentionally wore, does anybody know what this is? What do you say? Okay, in America we call it an ascot. Okay, in Europe they call it a cravat. Okay, so this thing, right, look at this thing. I put it inside because I don't want to be too crazy. All right, so let's look at this thing. All right, and I wore this thing intentionally. I thought it was cool. It's like this, there's actually a very fashion-forward um, artist at our church who's like, you should wear something cool. I'm like, what should I wear? It's like, you should wear a, a cravat. I'm like, all right. So I got this for 12 bucks off Amazon. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so the cravat has a history. Now, in wearing it today... Um, I'm not trying to look like this guy. He's wearing a cravat. See that? All right. I'm not trying to look like Louis XIV. But there is something a little bit what they used to call foppish. Foppish meant this. Like it's, it's, it's explicit a little bit too. Now I'm starting to look a little what we call feminine, right? A little bit too showy for the way men are supposed to dress historically. All right. Look at how showy this guy is, right? That's a different period, right? So... But actually, I was fearing when I put this on, like, how will they view me? I was hoping more to the left than the right, you know, because here's two people, all right? Um, and, and in fact, this, this item of clothing, it has a history, right? The top right, we see the history of it. Cravat comes from the word Croatia. And this is actually an early evolution of the tie, both the bow tie and the necktie, Okay. It was originally used by soldiers because it has a really very practical function. Number one, you don't have to launder your shirt so much because guess where shirts get dirty? The neck, right? Number two, protect yourself from the elements, right? Um, you can use it for a block. I mean, there's lots of different kind of practical functions why a soldier would use one of these things, all right? But after a while... If you, let's say that you're a king, well, you want to be a king that shows that you have some kind of military panache, you're going to start wearing one of these things and identify yourself with that kind of military panache because you're the head of, you know. So you can see how this thing evolves. But then, eventually, it becomes this kind of status symbol. In the 60s, it was brought back as a way of rejecting the necktie, but also kind of being flamboyant, Austin Powers-ish, right? Okay? Today, we have it um, being brought back as well, I'm hoping, that you think that's what was happening there. Okay, but let me just say something about this. Every item that you're wearing has a history. The blue jean has a history. High heels have a history. When high heels first came out, it destroyed flooring across America. <laughs> Airplanes had to be refloored. All buildings had to be floored. Carpet had to be reinvented. On every corner in New York, there was a dude who had a job. And his job was, when you walked from one corner to the next, you might break your high heel because we hadn't invented the technology for steel yet. And so people had entire industries around fixing women's high heels. And why was the high heel invented? Somebody studied the female body and figured out that if you elevate the back, that when a woman walks, her hips move in a more seductive pattern. All right? That's why, ladies, you feel like you are a sexual creature when you wear those things, right? (laughs) Someone thought of your physiology when they did it. Okay? It was a revolution, all right? The blue jean has a history. The blue jean's deeply American. The blue jean is from California, woo, right? It was originally created in order to help people work on the railroads, and then it became a sign of American independence, American uh, empire, American capitalism. In Russia, it was outlawed at times because it carried so much American value, right? And every single garment that we have, now, when you see a blue jean, you may not make those immediate associations, but there's some kind of level of awareness, because the items we're wearing work more like metaphors than they do like propositional statements. 
we're all making fashion statements, but fashion statements aren't descriptive, okay? They're not, they're not, uh, they're not uh, denotative, they're connotative. And because there is a, they're metaphoric, that means that there's a range. People often say, is it wrong if I wear this? It's like, well, it's like a metaphor. That metaphor might be part of a larger statement, and it may or may not be wrong, right? <laughs> Depending, it depends on what you're trying to say also, right? So fashion's an interesting kind of language, but it enables us to speak, and that's why fashion's so important for democracies. In places where democracy is being squashed, fashion's also being squashed. The streets of Tehran, where the fashion police are out, it's not just about modesty. It's also about political freedom, right? So these things are connected. We're going to get more into that. So fashion shapes our lives in so many ways. We already talked about this, our political life. You ever notice these people are all wearing almost the same outfit? Even the women are trying to mimic the men with the power suits? Why do you think that is? Where did the suit come from? The suit came out of the French Revolution. It was originally French, it was originally English bankers. English bankers who were self-made men who raised themselves up through hard work and discipline who were able to purchase the life of nobility. And so it's the opposite. The suit, the suit became the opposite of this guy and that lady. Right? Louis XIV and uh, Queen Elizabeth I, who's uh, 16th century. So our politicians don't dress on the left because our politicians are trying to give us a message, which is, I'm self-made, I'm hardworking, I'm disciplined, I don't think you owe me anything. I'm a self-made person. And that's the American value, right? It's also, the suit also, so, so you can study the whole history of the suit, but when we wear a suit, which, by the way, is the most stable form of male dress in the history, uh, it's probably been around for like 300 years, men have been wearing suits, right? Um, it was a complete rejection of arist- aristocratic values. And that's why our politicians wear suits. And that's why we want to look like we're in suits. Um, and all that, is con- there's all that is kind of a subtle connotation. I know we tend to think that we just simply make up the world as individuals, but nobody here invented the language we're speaking. We actually inhabit the language we're speaking. And no one invented the dress we're wearing. We inhabit it, and with it, we also recognize the connotations and denotations. How are we doing? Cool stuff, right? This stuff's interesting, I'm telling you. Super interesting. So, it impacts our political life. And like I said, it is um, central to democracies. What are the two fashion capitals in the, in the world, global fashion capitals? Paris and? Huh? Milan is historically, but Milan's probably not as important as New York. Okay? So Milan has ha- does have an important history. Remember that fashion um, came from northern Italy in the 14th century. Milan, Milan, Paris, London, they've all played important roles. But New York and Paris are the two major fashion capitals. Where are the two most important modern democratic revolutions? What two countries? France and America. Isn't it an accident that those two fashion capitals are connected to the two most important democracies? No. It makes sense, right? So they're deeply connected. So, Did you have a question? No? Okay. We can stop if you have a question. We, we can, we'll hit questions at the end, but if you have something pressing, you've got to get off your chest. We can do that. All right, so it impacts our political life. It impacts our cultural life. I think my notes work now. Yeah. Um, Anybody recognize this dress? Anybody recognize anything about this dress? <laughs> it's a Warhol soup can dress. It's called the super dress. Okay? And it's actually spelt like the French, le super. And it's made of paper. And it was kind of, it was something that would be sent to you. Um, and uh, it was sent out. And it was a piece of art that you could wear. It was disposable, which is kind of a criticism of the obsolescence, the planned obsolescence within fashion. It was merging modern art and fashion, which is something that's actually taken place. Warhol was a big part of that. Okay? Um, it, uh, it signaled to us um, that um, uh, it was a reminder of our own consumption, right? That fashion is about being a consumer. It really is a profound 
profound item. And it signals what has happened in the 20th century. In the 20th century, art and fashion have merged. Okay? Yves Michaud, who's another French uh, thinker. Um, if you're in fashion, you've got to read a lot of French people. I'm warning you right ahead, ahead of time. Um, he wrote a book called um, Art, The Gaseous State of the Arts. Okay, that's the translation. The Gaseous State of the Arts. And what he, what he talks about in this book is that fashion now shapes the way we experience art. When you go to a museum, you are no longer able to muse very well. Museums were for musing. In other words, you would sit in front of a painting and absorb it for a long period of time and muse on it. But now we go and check out the art. In the same way, when you're walking down the street or when you're walking between classes, you check out people. You see what I'm saying? So we now treat artworks like we treat fashion and they've merged. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but I am saying that, um, that fashion was very important. It, fashion works within the registrar of modern art in the sense that it's not necessarily concerned with like beauty as a fundamental dialogue, but it's more about meaning, the significance and the meaning of what you're wearing. All right? Is what you're wearing art? You're like, yeah, it is. <laughs> is it art? Did you want to say something? That's cool. Nice. All right. Um, so this is a big debate within fashion studies. You know, Clearly, fashion has been brought into the museum. There's now like so many different museums of fashion, right? Um, it's been brought into the museum. And, it's rec- and, there, and there are some parts that are, there's some things like haute couture, like an individual bespoke item that are clearly one of a kind. And there's a certain enchantment to it. All right. Is this art? Mm. Maybe not. I don't know. Let's put the cravat on. You guys should have told me, man. Come on. Work with me. Help me out. So, um, yeah. So, it, it has shaped our experience of art. And, in fact, uh, as it's changed our definition and understanding what art is. How are we doing? the back somewhat it's, is it a mess i appreciate the honesty back there in the back row nice okay um, fashion also shapes um uh our social allegiances it's a way of um um uh basically creating social allegiances okay what do these two groups have in common nothing <laughs> besides the fact that they're using their dra- their dress their dress to transgress the dominant culture Punks and Amish have the same logic, and here's the logic. I reject the fashion system. If I find a lavatory chain I think is cool, I'm going to wear that and attach my one ring to my other ring, wherever that is on the body, (laughs) you know? Um, I mean, found items are huge for punks because it's their way of saying, I reject that I need to simply go to school, get a job, and play by the rules, right? The Amish the same way. They reject the entire kind of commercial aspect of our public lives. But it's also a way in which you show identity. And in fact, um, sometimes it's, it's, it's very, very clear. Like when I was in high school, it's like, oh, you'd, you'd see somebody, okay, that's a, you know, that's a mod, that's a jock, that's a surfer, that's a skater. You could just go down the list, right? It's a little bit more tricky, but generally speaking, items uh, attach ourselves to different social allegiances. And that's because every time we get dressed... Uh, we are creating identity markers, right, with what we wear and showing different allegiances. All right. Fashion also shapes our lives because it's part of a market force. It's the way in which we fuse ourselves into relationships with others, primarily economically. Uh, I love Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss, like, has a lot to say about fashion. We talked about the Lorax during the first talk earlier today. So this is from the Sneetches. You guys know the, the story of the Sneetches? The star belly sneeches versus the unstar belly sneeches. Or this is a criticism of fashion, okay? So somebody gets the star belly, and then suddenly everybody wants it, and then they start paying to get it put on, and then they get paid to get it removed. It's also kind of interesting, like, view of tattoos also going on in this thing. But, um, and so, and there's somebody who's smart who figures this out, and he basically um, capitalizes on people's being kind of like lemmings. 
that just follow each other, right? And this is an old view of fashion, which is fashion is all about class distinction. It's like keeping up with the Joneses kind of view. Um, And it's true that fashion can operate like that, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't, isn't kind of stuck in that. But it is a way in which you show class distinction. All right? There are some people that believe that fashion is important for, late modern fashion is important for democracies and that knockoffs are critical because it dissolves fashion, uh, class difference. Without knockoffs, you can't really kind of, kind of dissolve classes. Um, I don't know if you think that's true. Anybody give me a thought? So, yeah, but class is a real thing, okay? And it's something that um, fashion is complicit with in one way or the other. So it it's, 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 uh, shapes our lives, it draws us into the market, and in many ways, it shows the expansive nature of the market. Because if the funda- fundamental way I relate to you is that you and I both are participating in a market-driven game, see how that's a different way of relating to somebody than you're my brother or sister in Christ, you know? or you are my neighbor, you live in my neighborhood, or you are the person on my team. And so fashion, now is there anything wrong with having a little bit of fun in playing off of each other and what you're wearing? Isn't it awesome that we all get to wear something different? Right? Aren't you glad we all didn't come in wearing the same boring thing? Yeah, you are. I have a high schooler. Let me tell you, every day she complains about the dress code. Okay? (laughs) Yeah, you are, right? It's, it's part of our American identity of freedom. How dare you make me wear what you say I will wear, right? And yet at the same time, behind it, there is this game that is deeply attached to the market, right? So, you know, people that want to like, want a nice answer, is fashion good or is it bad? It's just not that easy. I mean, we already know this. It's far more complex. It's doing so many things. It's, do, it's, 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 it's a form of communication. It's attaching us to other social groups and allegiances. You know, it's a way in which we are playing aesthetically with our bodies. When you get up in the morning, you look at your body and you think, how do I fix this? <laughs> okay. Just kidding, kind of. So, you know, <laughs> tighter jeans, tighter here, less tight here, right? We're playing with the aesthetics of our body. You know, we're showing that we, we, we are um, communicating things we value. Jubilee, get the Jubilee shirt. I went to Jubilee. You know, what's Jubilee? Jubilee is where I learned about Jesus. Awesome. I just use fashion to share Jesus. Wow, okay. Okay, so it's a little bit more complex. Um, finally, um, uh, let's see here. We talked about identity markers. I mean, fashion is a way in which we identify, you can identify sex, age, ethnicity, religious affiliation, occupation, interest, modesty, sexual availability. I need to, conf- you know, sometimes... People don't now. Well, you can wear things, and you don't even understand the meaning of it, or quite absorb it. The implications. I was talking to a friend of mine who said when she was in high school, she was trying to be rebellious, and so she, and she found a little Playboy bunny sticker and she put it on her car, because that was her way of. She just thought that was kind of cool and edgy. She didn't really know the history of the Playboy bunny sticker, and that little symbol. And suddenly, people were acting very different towards her, men in particular, right? Because she was communicating something. She didn't even understand the weight of what she was communicating. But when we get dressed, we do, we do communicate a host of things, right? And we may not be able to... We never absorb all that we're communicating. We're actually over-communicating and, um, and sometimes under-communicating at the same time. Isn't that fascinating? If you ever wonder, like, how, why is it so hard for me to figure out what to wear? You ever in one of those situations? Do you realize how many things you have to do with one outfit? Right? When I was 30 in my church, I was like in a quagmire. I like totally connect with all the younger people, but I totally could connect with the older people, and I didn't know what to wear. Because if I wore that, I totally was going one way. If I wore that, I was going the other way. And I wanted to connect with all of them, because I'm a pastor, right? It was, it was like, you know, or for instance, in our church, we, we're, I'm in a 135-year-old church, beautiful architecture. Uh, it's one of the very first attempts at non-denominationalism. It was called a uniting church in the in the late 1800s, 1886. And they're like, we just want to unite all Christians, so all Christians are welcome. This is before the non-denominational had been invented. And, uh, um, and uh, I love that we thought, well, maybe, because we're so classic and we're into historical shame, maybe we should wear a clerical collar. Well, what do you communicate when you wear a clerical collar? People might think you're Catholic, right? Okay, are you Catholic? No, we're not Catholic. You might think you're, you're Presbyterian or Methodist or Lutheran. Are you Lutheran? 
There you go. See, she's Lutheran, so she's going to think I'm maybe a Lutheran. Too, uh, also, maybe. Maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the flip side of it is, um, what do we, not, what do we uh, avoid communicating? Priesthood of believers. I'm one of you, right? Uh, so all that's involved in it. Okay, so it's an identity marker. And then fashion shapes our religious lives. Um, I have some things to say here. So much to say here. So much to say here. Um, okay. Uh, let's see here. There's actually, let's do this. There's actually um, a whole history of Christian engagement. But let's go here. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, who I've mentioned before, who was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, he was an editor, he started two newspapers, he started a university, he started a denomination, um, he, he uh, started a, a school reform movement, um, arguably the most, um, uh, I think, I think it, people have said that there's no one that's accomplished as much as him in the modern period, kind of like one of those crazy type A's. Um, he gave a lecture in... Um, 1869 at the Odeon Theater in Amsterdam in which he connected fashion to the rise of secularization. And his argument was the uniformity in dress that we see taking place shows that we think of all of our social uh, alliances outside of classical ways of having covenants, a series of covenants, that biblical word covenant. So you have a marriage covenant, then you have a covenant within your town to be a good citizen. You have a covenant with your king. All of society was basically understood as a series of covenants now it's understood primarily in terms of a certain economic arrangement. That's the fundamental way we identify ourselves. Um, and so he saw secularization and, um, and fashion playing together. And he thought that fashion disembedded us from viewing ourselves as, as people that maintain covenants. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that's interesting, right? Yes, it is. It's so interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> I think it's a dream. Giles Lipovetsky, who taught at Princeton, believes that fashion introduces the idea of the cycling of ideas as a necessary part of our life. That just as we cycle through clothes, the idea that you would just commit to one outfit seems crazy in the same way that the idea that you would commit to one worldview and just simply inhabit that worldview and definitely feels limiting. And so as we see the number of nuns, no religious affiliation grow and surpass those that actually have religious affiliation, it might be because of our practices of fashion. I don't know if that's true, but that's a thought. Okay, that's something that, and Giles Lipovetsky, he's not a, he doesn't have, he's, I think he's an atheist. Um, I don't know, what do you think of that? Ever thought of that? Think what? Uh, the idea that, um, that because we have certain practices of constantly cycling through our clothes and all of our choices, right, in a, in a market-driven economy, right, I mean, that's one of the marks of a capitalist market-driven economy, that it then influences the way in which we view ideas. And ideas are things you pick and choose from. Rather than sticking to just one thing, you would pick and choose. So either, if someone told you, like, okay, you're going to wear what you're wearing, that's going to be it, jeans and a T-shirt, so you die, you'd be like, this is crazy, I'm not doing this. Because we've grown up used to having a constant deferral of absolute choice. But when you enter a comprehensive perspective, like Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or atheism, I'd say that's, or I would, I would say unmitigated secular humanism, those are comprehensive perspectives that then explain all of reality. And once you enter into it, then it has an explanatory power. But that feels strange in a world of fashion. And by fashion, now I'm speaking largely in terms of, the, of choice within market-driven economies. Okay? I'm just throwing these things out there to get your, get your mind going. Okay? Just show you there's a lot more to fashion than you... And maybe you think, like, this is way more than I wanted. But there it is. Um, one more thing. Um, I have a picture here of St. Augustine. Confessions. Have you read the Confessions? It's the first autobiography in history, okay? All right? It's somebody's testimony of finding Jesus. Pretty cool, right? In it, he's going through his whole life as a prayer before God, and he's recounting his life, and he's thinking about his life in light of who God is, and he's talking about his life with God, and he believes that there is a depth to his self that is unique. We all believe there's a depth to ourself. You know who we can blame? This cat, 
right here. He believed that there was an inner depth. When we hear the mantra, follow your heart, all right, where does that come from? St. Augustine. St. Augustine would say, if you want to know God, follow your heart, because God is the ground of your heart. And if you follow your heart correctly, you will find God. The problem is, is that when people say, follow your own heart, follow your heart, they're giving you an Augustinian heresy. They're removing God out of the equation and saying, if you just follow your own heart, you'll find infinite caverns. But you could follow your own heart. What if you're like a mass murderer? (laughs) Not a good following of the heart, right? (laughs) Um, So this idea that there's a depth to the human self, that you can go inward, and that, and coming back to expression, 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 right? Fashion's about expression, self-expression. You see, that's what kind of what we, like, we learn. And that's good. Expression is critical. But the idea of expressionism, notice the ism. Now we're talking about a worldview. The idea that my life is about finding my deepest preferences and manifesting those is a very, very non-Christian view, Right? But once you get swept up into, so you can, self-expression is a great idea. Expressionism is a pagan view, (laughs) but it draws off of a heretical view of Augustine's understanding of the depth of the self. This is a whole other talk, but just something I want to point out. All right, let's bring the horses into the stable. Um, Everything matters. So Christian engagement. Um, I wrote a book on the history of Christian engagement with dress and fashion. Um, It's coming out. And it's unbelievable. I was shocked. It all started when I read this lecture by Abraham Kuyper on the relationship between fashion and secularization. I'm like, that's cool. I want to do a doctorate on that. And the more I studied the history of Christian thought, it was shocking how many profound uh, things. And if you look at Christian thinkers within their own fashion dispensations, they took fashion incredibly serious. They took dress way more serious than we take it. Okay, so, if, so the sad thing is, is most Christians today think fashion is a superficial subject. And that's out of touch with our history. And I don't have the time. You can read my book. I wrote a book on it. But we're out of touch with the history of Christian. Like, I mean, just take, take, some, take Aquinas in his Summa Theologica. He talks about the art of savoir-faire. What does it mean to understand the, the, how to dress exactly appropriately given a certain kind of social situation and the nature of social distributive justice. Profound thinking about what it means to live in light of fashion. Or you take Calvin. Calvin actually propelled fashion. You understand Calvin is own. Calvin gave so many times. I mean, Calvin, would, Calvin had all kinds of things to say about dress. He compared dress and, um, and, and food. You know, Jesus says, consider the lilies, you know, and, and uh, don't worry what, about what you're going to wear. So Calvin took those two things dress and food, and he said, in both of these situations, they're things that provide for us, and yet they're things that beautify our lives. And they are God's way of saying, I don't just want to provide for you, I want to bring you good. And that when you wear something and you feel good, you feel good about yourself, Calvin would say, that is a chance for you to give thanks and praise that it's not just, you know, fashion could have been, clothing could have been just, there could, our taste buds could have had no taste. You just put the food in. Some people still operate that way, okay? Dressing could have been, there wasn't an aesthetic element to it. We could go on and on. There's a whole book on it. But the point is, is that Christians have historically taken this very serious. Karl Barth, I just have to add this. Karl Barth, before he became um, a famous theologian, he led the charge against the textile union in Switzerland. People don't know this because he saw oppression in the fashion system. In the textile system. Isn't that crazy? I don't even know who Karl Barth is. Karl Barth's the most important theologian of the 20th century. Okay. There he is. He's looking pretty, he's looking pretty dapper, wouldn't you say? His little French beret. Okay. So fashion is deeply tied into our identity. Once we understand that, look at this first. You'll see it through new light. For as many as you are baptized in Christ Jesus have, have what? Put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. How would you, in Paul's day, identify whether you were Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female? Any idea? 
How would you identify that? What you wore, right? So Paul here is saying that he's taking, he's looking around and he's seeing all the different ways people would dress. And he's saying your fundamental identity is not found in the social allegiances that you have by, in light of what you're wearing. It's found in light of your baptismal garment in which you put on Christ. And when you see somebody, though you might see a male, a female, you might see their race, you might see their class, you might see their gender, Paul is saying that is not their ultimate identity. That's not ultimately what you want to look at. You want to look at whether or not they know Christ or they don't know Christ. Isn't that profound? Yeah. And, and so Paul understood that dress was one of the ways in which we inscribe identity. Finally, um, dress, fashion's all about hope. Uh, this is a runway that Alexander McQueen did where he purposely had his models walk on water. <laughs> there's a lot, by the way, I, I mentioned this in the last, last time, but there's, a, there's a, um, an Anglican minister at University of Cambridge. Uh, he's Brazilian. He's from Brazil who uh, is finishing up his doctorate at Cambridge, and it's on runways and theology. There's so much theology on runways. So, um, but uh, N.T. Wright, the top New Testament professor, has written over 80 books on, uh, on all kinds of stuff. Um, anyway, he was, British, uh, the, the British Bible Society, I'll end with this story, they, they decided to get a little edgy and try to reach people they wouldn't reach. And so in British Vogue, they had a series of ads where they would have models, you know, maybe looking wistfully out the window or whatever, and then they would put a verse, usually from the Gospels, you know. Um, and N.T. Wright was being interviewed on the BBC, which is one of these hours, it was kind of a drive-home thing, and, uh, and they said, why, why, why is the British Bible Society doing this? And he made this statement, fashion draws us in because it holds out the hope that our bodies were made for so much more. And that's a deeply Christian conviction, that we are resurrection creatures, that we were made, that this life and this body is actually just a seed, as Paul says in Corinthians, and that one day we will be raised imperishable, and that if we were to see who we would be in the future now, we'd be tempted to worship ourselves, because we'd be filled with so much glory. And I think those moments where you do feel like you belong you know, when you, when you actually are, like, when you wear something and you feel really good about it and you think you look beautiful and you think, you, and it's just the right thing for that occasion, like, it's like you belong in the universe, that's a deeply Christian intuition, isn't it? Because it's, the reality is in life, so seldom do we really feel like we quite belong in this world. There will be moments in which your life is punctuated with that, but that's the exception. It's not the norm. I can say I'm 53. I've lived a lot of life. And life is usually, it has a lot of difficult moments. And so people, when they're putting on things and they're trying out, and they're, at some point we're playing with our bodies. We're imagining. My daughter, when she, this all started 10 years ago. My daughter, I came out, she had a pillowcase. She had cut it up made it into a little outfit. I'm like, how, like, like I was like, and she was like a queen. She had like a little crown, and she's like marching around with this pillowcase on. And I'm like, man, she wants to imagine her life as an elevated something else. But, you know, that's exactly what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us that our life, that, that we were meant to be elevated. We are the children of God. We're children of the king, right? And so I'm not saying every time you dress, but I'm saying that fashion is a pointer to our eschatological hope, that one day we will have glory. The problem is, is when we forget that the verdict about who we are was already settled 2,000 years ago, right? That's the problem. And we start looking to sculpting our body and wearing certain things in order to feel, in order to answer the question which has already been answered. So I'm going to end with that. Thank you very much for your attention. Oh, and um, some resources. Uh, I'll, I'll just point this out. Some of these are pointed. These are the first talk. See some of these. There's a, there's a couple new ones. Um, Top left, Fashion of Philosophy, Lars Fenson. If you're interested in the new and how the new impacts us, that part of my talk, I get that from Lars Fenson. The new is relatively new. The value of the new is relatively new in the history of thought. But we all believe in the new. If you want to explore that, you can see that in Lars Fenson. He's, he's a critic of fashion, 
Um, but he, I think he nails a lot of the deeper philosophical issues really well and points out. Below that is Malcolm Bernard. He's probably the top philosophical fashion theorist. I studied with him. He's in the UK. There's a four-volume set of uh, fashion theory. I mean, this is a big subject here, and he's the editor of that. He's an atheist. When I first came to study with him, he was like, what's a theologian studying with me for? And he's like, this is a completely secular discussion. Christianity has nothing to do with this. Um, I sent my book to him and asked for an endorsement. He came back with a glowing endorsement saying this is going to shape the future of fashion theory. So praise God for that. I'm hoping it does. I'm hoping that future Christians that come after me will enter into this conversation and already have a head start. But that's Malcolm Bernard, and it's a good guy. Um, thinking through fashion, this is uh, Annika Schmelik, um, is at the University of Nijmegen, which is in the Netherlands, and she was on my, op, uh, my opposing... In the ne- when you do a doctoral defense in the Netherlands, you have, it's really brutal. You have like all these opponents, they call them. You have like five opponents. It's one of the most grueling doctoral defenses in terms of like the defense. But, um, so she's not a Christian, but she was, uh, she's, she's really bright. So she edited this book. It's about, it takes basically different major theorists, the Judith Butlers and, you know, um, gosh, all of the, um, the Bordeaux's and the Mary Lou Pontes and all the major theorists. And it shows how their theory uh, works within fashion and what it says about fashion, how imp- what its implications are for fashion, okay? So that's, the, that's probably the most theoretically um, driven book on fashion. And, and those three, are none of, they're not Christian. Overdressed, this is all, you actually, I think this author here, there's a, there's a, her second book is down there in the bookstall, and it's all about fast fashion and fashion and ethics and sustainability and things that Christians should be on the vanguard of. The character fashion, Simon Ward was the head of the British Fashion Council. He's a Christian, um, and he also does this podcast below it. That book, The Character of Fashion, unfortunately, it ships from the UK. I couldn't get it in time. But if you are in the fashion industry, you should have that book. And if you want to get the, the gist of it, there's a podcast called The Heart of Fashion, which is like eight different uh, radio shows. You can Google it, listen to it. I was listening to it last night, prepping up for this. Top right, we have Pop Cultured by Steve Turner. There is a chapter in there on fashion. Um, it's a good starter. There's a lot of, it deserves a whole talk because I think, I think he has a simplistic understanding of how fashion works. So he has a very top-down understanding. Like there's fashion designers and they have these ideas and then we just absorb their ideas. The reality is, is that there is no ultimate authors to the dress, the clothing we wear. Like who, who is the author behind your clothing? Designers are the first voice, but then you also have the person that's going to produce it. And then you also have um, you know, how it then gets absorbed within the social setting and then gets redefined. So, for instance, like, um, yeah, we won't go into the history of stuff, but it's okay. All right, and then there's my book that, by God's grace, will be out uh, later this year. So thank you so much for your attention and time, and I, we have, a, we have a, maybe a few minutes for questions or interaction or disagreement. Thank you.